Can you say two words for me in your Israeli accent? Omicron. Omicron. Omicron in Hebrew. His name is Omri Kron. <laughs> Omri Cohen. Omri Cohen. Very good. Is that what he is? And abundance. The abundance of uh, caution. <laughs> this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined, as I always am, by my co-hosts, Tablet senior writer, Leah Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And to you as well, sir. And Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hey, hey, happy 2022. This is going to be the good one. This is going to be the great year, the best year, best year ever. I, I still sign my checks, Tafshin Pe'alif. I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're still back in 5781. Sorry. Today, you know how you know it's going to be the best year ever? Because the podcast is so good today. We bring you an interview with Gentile of the Week, Delvin Case, who of course goes by Del, Del Case. He's a Christian composer who has written a cantata about the binding of Isaac, and he, he talks us through how he chose that subject, and we get to hear a little bit of his music. Who we, by the way, found exclusively with our new Gentile name generator algorithm. We just feed <laughs> names and confirm Gentiles emerge. Uh, that, that would be, could we get our could we get our tech team on that? Could we get like Noam Blum on that to generate? Yeah. I want like a, to me in my mind it's like a bingo thing that sort of like goes around and around and around and makes that noise and we pull one out. You can dial up the level of waspiness, right? So it's super high wasp. The, the boys' names and the girls' names are actually interchangeable. Like you don't know if Delvin is right. male or female, right? Like you you have no idea. You have to, you have to call your friend Madison to find that out. Exactly, Madison with with a Y, and uh, Jew of the week, uh, Liz Lang the uh, legendary maternity wear designer. I learned just last night when I was telling Sid that we had Liz Lang on this week. She said, oh, I, I wore Liz Lang during my pregnancies. And I- She changed the game. I had no idea. And what's so interesting is, of course, the only thing Sid wore during her pregnancies was from the bag of maternity clothes that makes its way around our neighborhood, that women just sort of pass on to the next pregnant woman. So some of it, I think, is, is you know, Walmart, and some of it's super high-end, and some of it's Liz Lang. And I did not know that my wife was, was wearing Liz Lang. It takes a village, New Haven. It does. And, and uh, Liz Lang has a new podcast out, which is about her life of extreme wealth, but also occasional despair. And she uh, joined us for a super candid interview that was a lot of fun. But I want to check in with you guys, with my homies, because uh, the gang's together again. It's 2022. Can I share my reflection for 2022? Sure. Did anything ever stop you before? <laughs> and also, is it a reflection forward for 2022 or a reflection past of like the last 10 days of 2022? I think I'm actually reflecting back onto January 4th or 5th. It was one of the, okay. the first days when shops were open again, when the, the New Year's closures had elapsed. And I was sitting in a, uh, a fabulous new neighborhood coffee shop called Pistachio, which is, uh, has many pistachio-based pastries and is, is Middle Eastern in uh, styling and just delicious. And I was having a coffee and I heard two sort of, you know, middle class, I, I, people would call, I don't like hipster because I feel like it's almost too complimentary. It's what in the 80s would have been called a yuppie. They were kind of yuppie scum. They looked sort of well-to-do and smug, <laughs> that combination. It was a woman and a man and he seemed to be some sort of life coach for her. Like you got the sense that he wasn't a friend, that there was maybe money changing hands, that he was a professional. And she was going on about how She's really just trying to make sure she gets enough protein. And he was saying, well, the key thing is you want to make sure you get enough protein at different times of the day because if all of your protein comes from like a nice piece of fish at dinner, but you're not getting protein in the late morning, you're not going to have even protein levels throughout the day. And she was like, oh my God, that's so true. I just feel like 
like late morning is low protein, early afternoon, I'm not really up in my protein. And he's like, yeah, we really have to have a chart to smooth out your protein consumption across the day. And I had this moment, I thought- you know, You're listening and you're like, yeah, I, I no longer believe in democracy or freedom. It's just- I, I you know, people maybe, locked up. Maybe it's all the time I spent, you know, reporting on anti-Semitic murder and, you know, uh, neighborhood resilience or something. Another important topic. Right. And I try not to bring that to like the trivia of my own day, right? Like when I get mad because I burn a bagel or something and I think the world is ending. But, you know, you do have to keep things in perspective. But I did have this moment where I thought- Because you toast a bagel, which is a crime against humanity, but go on. <laughs> I had this moment where I thought, oh my God, like, how are we going to make it as a country? Because it wasn't just his belief that she had to smooth out her protein levels across the day. It was her realization that he had just nailed it, that that was exactly it, that it was that the missing link in all the work they'd been doing together, where idiot number one had been paying idiot number two to help her solve whatever life problems she had, that the missing link was, was sort of smoothing out the protein levels across your waking hours. And now they'd solved it and they could get on to the real work. Meanwhile, her grandma worked at the <laughs> munitions factory stateside while his grandpa stormed the beaches in Normandy. And here we are. Here we are, right? I'm here, here are, 50 right? years later having a conversation about legumes. So what was the end? What did she order? Uh, well, I mean, this was the thing was at the time, I believe they were both drinking like green tea and having a, a piece of Melba toast or something. They were, mm, they were definitely delicious. down in the, the low calorie uh, portion of their day. They were in a calorie dip hour, according to the, the charts. And so when you, this happened, you were like, oh, I'm going to use this for the podcast. You weren't like, I'm going to confront these, these people. Well, I mean, what? And say, <laughs> the thing is, all I could have done was go over and just smash them over the head with my mug and say, there are people, like Afghanistan is literally about to have, they're in the midst of a famine that we helped cause. And you're talking about smoothing out your protein levels across the day. And I, I just, but I'm sure that's me sometime. I'm sure there's sometime I'm going on about some problem that seems unbelievably like world beating important to me. And there are people at the next table thinking this guy doesn't have a clue, but at least it's not protein levels. I, I don't know. Okay. Cover me. I'm, I'm going into this, okay. to this rabbit hole that you've just <laughs> undug in the, uh, uncovered in, in the earth. Okay. So I buy something profound about it, but I don't buy sort of like something more superficial about it. I don't buy the argument of there are children starving in Afghanistan. Oh, we're therefore. still talking about this. I thought right. you were pivoting the conversation. To uh, what, no, no, okay, I, I will pivot in a moment, if okay. you will. This is important. These are people ordering protein in a New Haven coffee shop. This deserves right. a long discussion because I think it actually reveals something really sort of surprisingly profound about the way we see the world. Like the conversation of like, oh, you know, there's famine in Yemen. Like we can't talk about anything right. because like the world is this hierarchy of like We can't argue about White Lotus on correct. HBO Max because there's famine in Yemen, right? For Brengen, all that. Like I am not buying that for a second because that is this kind of like weird, icky way of basically shutting down conversation and bringing everything back to like power structures and relationships. And like only the most terrible human being who actually don't care about other people suffering think like that. However, in your great uh, corduroy rabbinic wisdom, you have uncovered, I think, something that's, that's really true, which is how much energy and effort and emotional charge we give to these things that we set up to replace what used to be sort of like profound satisfying normal human life, you know? Normalcy, you know? right? As more and more and more and more of us don't form significant attachments, don't start families, 
don't have, you know, meaningful vocations, don't have associations with communities of faith or any other communities, it becomes all about the protein. Uh, I don't know. You know, it becomes all about the exercise bike. It becomes all about the show that you watch on Netflix. That's what's breaking I my I think heart. that you can have all of that and still care about protein. Of course you could. And I am example number one to 100. I am the most basicest of all basic bitches out there in my attachment that's why we love to, you. To, to all things, you know, shallow consumption. But I see a lot of people who aren't, which is why everyone, you know, incessantly talks about the TV shows they watch. Stephanie, I want to puzzle through this with me here. Sure. I hear where you're going with this, you know, and you, both of you are, you know, defenders of the basic in a way, you know, where, I, where I'm judgmental, you're the, uh, you're the compassionate defenders. Here's the thing. This discourse did not seem to be making this woman happy. Right. And she, I think she's paying a lot of money to this guy who, by the way, was lying to her. Like, I don't think there's, a, I don't think he had any real evidence. I don't think we could get five scientists on who would say, oh, absolutely. Like, whether your protein is at 11 and 2 or 1 and 3 is a really important issue in terms of your well-being, right? Well, it's actually 10 and 2. They were actually like the steering spewing. Wheel. I mean, I don't know a lot about, I'm not a dietitian. I don't know a lot about your crazy Hold science. Hold on, I'm just, I'm just getting a text from, uh, from a Dr. Pepper who confirms it is indeed true. <laughs> You snobs with your Dr. Pepper. <laughs> but here's the thing. A, he was lying to her. This was nonsense. I was listening to this thinking, you guys are spewing complete nonsense. There is zero truth content to anything you're saying, right? And yet it passes as a normal conversation in our society. But B, she wasn't happy. And he wasn't happy. He was doing a dumb job and seemed irritated. And she was in 12 kinds of panic and anxiety over, you know, what time of day she was getting her protein. And you wanted to say, like, these people need meaningful, purposive work, right? Like if they were in fact fighting. Yeah. Call, call grandma. How about that? Yeah. I mean, I was, I think about, you know, I had the realization recently that because I've been reading up on the flu pandemic of 19 and 1920, really it was 1918 to 1920, the last great pandemic. I've been trying to figure out like, how did people handle that situation? And it occurred to me that my grandparents lived in Philadelphia, which was in America, one of the worst hit cities. And they were born in 1907 and 1910. So they, they knew this as children. They never talked about it. They were perfectly stoic about it the rest of their lives. I never heard them mention it. But, you know, one of the things you noticed about them was if they had a decent meal on the table, that was enough, they, right? Like when you've lived through the depression, the war and the flu pandemic, the idea that one of them would have sat around sort of doing a protein schedule for their day, it just doesn't compute. And I just, I think we're worse. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to find so much meaning in that one exchange where we can either say that people have lost their important connections. I don't know. I feel like it was like, could it have been just like a funny thing you overheard? Or do we have to draw broad conclusions from it about society and its decline? I feel judgy the, this morning. I'm going to go to the ladder. It started at Normandy and it ended at Pistachio. <laughs> RIP society. <laughs> I'm really mad at this guy who I think this life coach yeah, was yeah. charging her money for this. Right? Or are you mad that you're not the guy charging money for this? <laughs> or were you, were you a little hangry because you had not ha yet had enough protein for the day? You want to hear being mad about things? I'll, I'll sure. give you being mad about you could, something. You're going to outdo me in the new year? As you know, I hoped to spend winter break in the great Jewish state of Israel, which concluded that it was not letting Americans in because of Omicron. Or shall I say some Americans? Here's a list of Americans who are not allowed in. My, my children to go see their safta, uh, their grandmother, my mother in Tel Aviv. Here's a list of Americans who were allowed in. Steve Harvey, who is hosting the Miss Universe pageant, which was held in Elat. So Israel very giddily welcomed in a host of 
lovely young uh, ladies and producers and cameramen and, you know, PR flax, et cetera, et cetera, because it is uh, very important that everyone in the world is see that Israel is normal country, has very beautiful women going around in Elat. But when, uh, you know, the Jewish children from New York want to go visit their grandmother, we're very sorry. Out of an abundance of caution, we're not going to let you in. Now, here's the thing. Look, Israel is uh, it's a country. Uh, it has every right in the world to decide its policies, who it lets in and who it doesn't let in. It could decide uh, that it irrationally wants to close the border when Omicron was very low and reopen it now when Omicron's like 30-something thousand infections per day. It could do all that. But next time it comes to me and some, you know, Israeli dipshit minister comes to the tablet offices and be like, I have a very important piece <laughs> about why the diaspora relations, they're very important. I would say, you know who you should take it to? You should take it with Steve Harvey. Go watch an episode <laughs> of The Price is Right because The Price ain't right for me. If you're the Jewish state and not just an Israeli state, let me in. Let, let my people come, which is a new <laughs> slogan I'm making up right now. Let them come all over the place. I thought you were going to say uh, the only way that Tablet will have anything to do with these these people anymore is is if they come on the podcast, so you can so you can grill them about their their Omicron immigration standards. That, right. that basically, basically they were like, it's not safe. It's safe for the models uh, and and Steve Harvey because it's very important to us to show the world that we're cool. But the Jews who want uh, to no, visit the other Jews— you're missing the point. It's not <laughs> that they're showing the world that we're cool. It's that Steve Harvey and models are better than us. They're more Omicron-resistant. They're better looking. They're taller. They have lower body fat. They're more Omicron-resistant. I mean, if, if you're a— tro- Science shows that Steve <laughs> Harvey is four times less likely to transmit yeah. the virus than my children. Yeah. That's exactly right. They're not focused on BDS. They're focused on CBS. <laughs> Never. <laughs> they're focused on TNA, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> Stephanie, what are you mad about this week? Come on. Uh. I'm not mad about anything because I've had my, my protein levels are perfect right now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They're leveling. I learned something recently. I was watching a new movie, uh, The Tender Bar, which stars <sighs> Ben Affleck and is based on J.R. Moringer's. Yeah. Great book. Is that movie good? Is it good? Because so, the book's amazing. I haven't read the book and it's one of the books that Ben Cohen thinks is insane that I haven't read because it's about Long Island. That goes up there with The Great Gatsby in the, the Long Island canon of things I have not read. But I watched the movie and apparently does not live up to the book and it's very different from the book. But I learned something really, really important from this movie, which is that someone uses the word agita and someone says, what does that mean? And he says, it's Yiddish for heartburn. And I turned to Ben Cohen and I was like, is that true? <laughs> like, this is sort of the opposite of, remember, I thought minutia for a long time was a Yiddish word. And then I saw it spelled out and I was like, oh, that's like just a Latin word. Right, um, right. I, I just heard minutia um, and the meaning and thought it was Yiddish. This is the Minutia was my great just- uncle who used to subscribe to the Forwards. <laughs> uncle Minutia. But so, and every day at I mean, 4 p.m., I, he prayed minutia. Basically, I always thought Ajita was like from the Latin thing. And so then I started, I started, I went down a Google hunt. Ajita like entered the lexicon as something that either Yiddish or Italian Americans said in New York. Like this really? is the thing. And I want people to write in because there's people who say it's Italian American. People say it's Yiddish. People who sort of say it's both. Wow. Basically, I need people to write in and explain to me the etymology. I mean, Where do you think Ajita came from? It's really interesting. A lot of people Googling it and not finding the answers. And this is so interesting. Of course, I think we've talked about this before, how my mother always thought that shindig was a Yiddish word. And she used to get annoyed at her very waspy friend who would talk, I'm going to throw a shindig. And my mom was like, that's that's my people's word. And of course, it's not a Yiddish word. It's just it's, it just sounded <laughs> Jewy to my, to my mother. But I love oh, the idea that Ajita, 
What if Ajita is Yiddish? That's insane. And by the way, I kind of had the reverse of kismet, which I was just always thought was like kismet was like a Christian word for Bashar. Oh, interesting. And what is kismet? <laughs> Where does it come from? Did you? I have no idea. Know? I just heard someone okay. say it once. I think, isn't it some some kind of sort of like Turkish? Hindi, Hindi language? Des- when in doubt, it's know. Turkish, like bazaar. <laughs> when like in doubt, Dr. Shopping, the bazaar. Yeah. So, okay, we have a lot of work Let's for the Jake Let's start a thread about this. Yeah. Yeah. We want your Facebook messages. We also want your phone calls, 914-570-4869, or your uh, emails to unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Tell me if I'm being unfair to the life coach and client who want to smooth out her protein consumption across the day. Tell Leal if he's being unfair to his his homeland, to Israel, and uh, help us with with Agita. We need we have so much crowdsourcing. 2022 is the year of crowdsourcing. That's what I've that's what I've decided. It's the year of the J Crew, basically. Crowdsourcing. <laughs> that's Yiddish. That's when you give service to a full crowd of people. And Gary Steingart's new novel, where like the therapist who works with Russian immigrants in Brighton Beach, they refer to George Soros. George they're oh, yes. all like in, they're all in deep right wing conspiracy land because of their George Facebook Soros. Page. And they refer to George Soros as George Sor- Georgi Soros. <laughs> Amazing. It's all because of Georgi Soros. A little news of the Jews. Liel, as our Brussels correspondent, this is from a couple weeks ago, but we have to update people after the holiday season. Do you want to do you want to take us to the news in Belgium? I would like to take our listeners to the news in Belgium, the child rape capital of the world. (laughs) This is from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Dozens of soccer fans in Antwerp were filmed giving Nazi salutes because, of course, it was a Wednesday while chanting about Hamas and gassing and burning Jews. The incident appeared to have taken place at or outside Café Stadion, the brilliantly named restaurant, thus named because it was next to a soccer stadium. The men chanted, my father was in the commandos. My mother was in the SS. Together they burned Jews because Jews burn the best. Belgians, no one let your moms into the SS. They were nowhere near good enough. Austrians, maybe. Belgians, no way. You guys are just a cleaning crew. Uh, all these guys appear to be fans of the Bierschott soccer team of Antwerp. I hate to say this is where we're at. Thank you guys for acknowledging the gas chambers. Like, thank you for acknowledging the reality of what went down because a lot of people don't. And so, like, look. <laughs> Small victories. I don't know. Small yeah. victories. We'll take it where we can. So soccer chants occur regularly in Europe, uh, but especially, it seems, in Belgium. And the piece concludes by saying that separately, the ethics board of the Royal Belgian Soccer Association last week find the club Bruges Belgian soccer team to the tune of $2,226 for chance heard at three different recent matches. And what they don't say is actually this fine is going to be paid in coins that they throw at Jews. Correct. <laughs> uh, but you know what? They're stupid in America also. Uh, this from the Washington Free Beacon. The Washington, D.C. public school librarian who made third graders reenact graphic scenes from the Holocaust has a history of crime and alleged crime. She was once convicted of defrauding the state of New Jersey. Also, she'd been charged with several counts of animal abuse. Kimberlyn Jerkowski was placed on leave this week after parents complained to Watkins Elementary School that she made students role-play the Holocaust, assigning students to be Jews and pretend to die in gas chambers and dig mass graves. One student was assigned to be Adolf Hitler, who carried out the Holocaust, Jerkowski told the students, because the Jews, quote, ruined Christmas. 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. Jerkowski's legal problems continued in 2019 when she faced four charges of animal cruelty for leaving her dogs out in the cold. So look, people who abuse animals are the worst people in the world. And it's not surprising when they are also rabid anti-Semites. I'm trying to imagine how I'd react if my daughter Anna came home <laughs> from her third grade school and said, they made us play. I mean, she goes to a Jewish day school and so it's a little less likely. It would be appropriate. <laughs> The Holocaust, it's, it's, it's uncomfortably close, right? We, she's definitely getting some Holocaust education. I don't think it's quite being done that way. It's basically Tisha B'Av at a Jewish camp. I would, I would say, like, did you at least get to be Hitler? Because we don't settle in the Leibowitz family. It's Hitler or nothing, baby. Right. They made you Rudolf Hess. I'm calling the headmaster right now. That's There'll right. Be none of that. Guys, there were gas chambers in this as well. Like, let's let's hear it for historical accuracy. <laughs> That's again, once again. That is a, a very small hill for me to die on, uh, so to speak. Stephanie, you're saying a bad week for Holocaust denial. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm taking these wins. This is my my this is you know my a really dry January. How about that? Liel, take us out with the late breaking news from the Middle East. We have been covering this story for years now, and finally. Stephanie, Mark, our long national nightmare is over. <laughs> there is proof of the existence of killer Zionist dolphins trained by the Mossad to fight Israel's enemies. This is from this morning's Jerusalem Post. Israeli security forces used a dolphin to chase Hamas frogman commandos off the coast of the Gaza Strip, the terrorist organization claimed on Monday, according to a report on one of their websites. During an operation that occurred at an unstated time, Hamas naval operatives were chased into the sea by a dolphin <laughs> equipped with a device capable of killing <laughs> terrorists. And here follows a completely hilarious video that does three things. First of all, it, it has a Hamas spokesperson with, you know, his voice sort of altered, looking very, very serious. <laughs> Second of all, he showcases the headpiece and it's like something out of He-Man. To be clear, the headpiece that the, that the dolphin, that you mount on the dolphin's head. As the Zionist Mossad-trained dolphin uh, killing innocent Palestinians at sea, you know, goes about his business. It, the headpiece looks like something if your daughter's junior high drama department was entrusted with like coming up with a prop, this is what they would make. It's like an insult to Jews that this is what they think we would create. It's like 17 feet long and looks like it just fell off like a Fiat or something. I'm not sure if I want it to be true or not. Like on the one hand, we've always treated this as sort of bizarre, like Hamas conspiratorial thinking and kind of anti-Semitic and that they would think we would train dolphins to go. On the other hand, if you are in a state of war or, you know, or military antagonism with another group and you don't want to put human lives at stake, training a smart animal like a dolphin to do your dirty work is not the craziest thing. My favorite thing, and I'm going to bring this up because people, we have not talked about this yet in 2022. My favorite Wikipedia page of all time, Israel-related <laughs> animal conspiracy theories. Yes, that is a Wikipedia page. We will put it in the show notes. Zoological conspiracy theories involving Israel are occasionally found in the media or on the internet. And then there is a very full list of, of all the animals that have been sort of accused at one point or another of being like Mossad spies, so Israeli spies. There's birds. And then there's a bunch of subcategories. There's the kestrel, the bee eater, vultures, eagles. And under eagles, there's a subcategory for the Griffian vulture. Then there's 
the fish. And then there's dolphin pigs, pigs, which is, you know, a little, it's like a little offensive um, that you think we have trained pigs or would we do that? Do they include fake animals? Is there a jackalope? Is there a unicorn? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, and then there's just a category for reptiles. Um, yeah, you know. I also like I said we just now as though I was part of the Mossad uh, animal conspiracy. And maybe I am. You never know. You're behaving exactly as you would if you were part of the conspiracy. You're sort of I denying can't. it, but with some levity, like you're joking about it, as if it's the craziest thing in the world. And we don't know where you've been during this so-called maternity leave. We don't know if you've been training <laughs> dolphins. And then, of course, because Hamas, really, guys, like we have so much to learn from these people. Every time they have break a piece of news, there's also what to go with it. A catchy pop song. There's a catchy, amazing pop song. Producer Josh Cross, take us away with this bit of delight. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show.
Our Jewish guest this week is Liz Lang. She is a maternity wear designer. She's credited with shifting the maternity styles away from the frumpy and frilly and towards the more fitted and flattering. But before she was Liz Lang, she was Liz Steinberg, niece of corporate raider Saul Steinberg. She tells the story of her family's spectacular rise and eventual fall in the new podcast, The Just Enough Family. We spoke with the refreshingly honest and entertaining Liz about her family story. Liz, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. I'm so psyched to be here. So I've known your name forever, right? You really revolutionized maternity wear. And as someone who recently was wearing a lot of maternity wear, your name was obviously, you know, in the mix a lot. I have to say, I did not know anything more about you, about your family until this podcast, The Just Enough Family. So will you tell us a little bit about who you really are, who you, who, <laughs> where you come from, and then a little bit also about the podcast as well? When I started Liz Lang, it was really important to me that I it wasn't viewed as like, oh, she's just some rich girl whose family's funding some stupid idea she has, because it actually wasn't like that. When I started Liz Lang Maternity, first of all, my name really was Liz Lang. I had married someone with the last name Lang. And I was, I was very proud to be Jewish, but I couldn't believe my good fortune of going from Liz Steinberg to like movie star name Liz Lang, right? Like with the alliteration, it's almost like Lois Lane. It was just too good to be true. <laughs> so I started that brand. I wasn't really using the name Steinberg again, just because I was, I kind of switched over to Liz Lang and I didn't want it to be misinterpreted because yes, I was very lucky that I wasn't worried about my next meal. And people are always like, oh, you were so brave. And you know how everyone's rewritten entrepreneurship now. So everyone's kind of like, first of all, what you did for women. I'm like, I, I just had some dumb idea. I mean, I liked it, but I, I wasn't a feminist and I like fashion. It wasn't that I was so, so brave. Nothing bad was going to happen to me if this business didn't work out. However, I did it on a shoestring budget that my family provided. But it was, you know, at the end of the day, it was like $25,000. And when I sold Liz Lang 10 years later to private equity, it was the globally largest maternity apparel brand. So what, what people didn't know, and I didn't ever really talk about, was the fact that at around the time that I was born, my uncle, Saul Steinberg, not to be confused with the artist, started a, a computer leasing company out of my grandparents' rubber factory and soon turned it into such a successful company that he was the richest self-made man in America under the age of 30. This was in the 1960s. My father worked for him. He made our entire family rich beyond our wildest, wildest, wildest dreams. From there, they parlayed that into a major insurance company, multi-billion dollars, a holding company where they held things like Days in hotels, the Hotel du Cap in the south of France, um, shipping companies, so many brands, a Telemundo. And we were extraordinarily well-known as a very rich family. I felt there was no difference growing up between our last name Steinberg and the last name, let's say, Rockefeller, that they both just equaled money. And then we lost it all very unexpectedly. <laughs> And this is that story. But when I was growing up, like we were like the definition of rich, like, like as you read in like, you know, Richie Rich cartoon mansions and private planes and my, you know, on page six all the time and tons of staff, like all the stuff that you think is more like quintessentially rich. So it was kind of this crazy life that I led. And so I decided to make a podcast. I always thought my story would make an interesting memoir. So I toyed with doing a memoir and I like to write. And my best friend, Arielle Levy, who you guys might know, she's a writer uh, for mm -hmm. The New Yorker, a great, great writer. writer. 
she always wanted to sort of do it with me. I had this little story I was always working on, kind of an imaginary story called The Just Enough Family, where the family it was kind of loosely based on, remember the beginning of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where the grandparents kind of share a bed with Charlie. And you remember that? Yeah, before he wins a gold ticket. I always just thought that looked so cozy and so sweet. Plus there was this other Jewish family series when I was growing up called the, I want to say it was called the All the Kind Family. Anyway, they lived on the Lower East Side. They had a push car. Right? Love okay. those books. They loved. So they didn't have a lot, but they had just enough. So I had this thing that we would be the just enough family and just always have like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, just enough. Cut to Ariel gets this deal with Sony Music. They want her to do a podcast. She decides she wants to do one on people that have led unexpected lives. She comes to me. She's like, you've led the most unexpected life in every single respect want to do an episode. So I was like, sure, I'll do an episode. Um, Did the episode. I guess Sony or she really was like, this is like a gold mine. Let's do a season. And that's how the Just Enough Family podcast came to be. There's something really, really profoundly Jewish about this story, right? Like you guys were up there, you know, your uncle Saul Steinberg, he bought like a, what did he buy? Like a Rockefeller's house. Like there was a real pushiness about breaking into this like rarefied wasp world that was so much a part of what what your family was doing. So could you sort of bring us the Jewish angle on all this? First of all, being Jewish was extraordinarily important in my family. It was kind of all we talked about. And the fact that we were Jewish was just part of the story. So for instance, my uncle, having made all this money, had this idea that he would take over Chemical Bank. But when he tried to do that, basically all of their leasing customers, everyone from Goodyear Tires and on and on, basically said to them, you buy this bank and you'll find your computers like that we leased from you, basically waiting on the steps of your office tomorrow. Rockefeller, ironically, who I guess was the governor of New York, overnight passed some new law about which kind of companies could own banks and which couldn't, but it was pure anti-Semitism. The world kind of came together and was like, Jews can do a certain things, but they cannot own one of these banks. And so I think that my uncle at that point kind of famously said, was quoted as saying, I always knew there was an establishment. I just thought I was part of it. And we knew that there were so many things as Jews that we couldn't do. And we kind of had this, and I think I say it in the podcast, this weird feeling of like, almost like we live amongst you, but we're not part of you. Like from that, whatever Terminator, like we are on some level, it was like this weird, like snob supplicant. We're better than you. We're worse than you. We're better than you. It was like my mother, my sister, my mother, my sister. Like on the one hand, it was like, well, F them. Like, we like Bedford, New York. I see that, like, you know, your fancy wasp friends, Liz, because they sent me to school with all these fancy wasps but became my best friends. They seem to live there. We're moving to Bedford. No problem. We like Lily Pond Lane in East Hampton. We built a house there. The year that we built it, our two neighbors on either side each sold their houses and moved. And it was on, it was widely known that they're just, again, weren't a lot of Jews at that time on Lily Pond Lane in East Hampton. Today, it's all Jewish. You know, my parents would talk about buildings. They'd say, maybe we'll move here. And then I might overhear them saying, like, yeah, we'd never get in. And I would say, what, you know, what does that mean? Like, well, uh." and it was was like, no, you know, Jews can't live in that building and it's fine. I mean, it was all kind of fine. We were really proud of the fact that we were sort of crossing all these barriers. I think it was a generation where a lot of Jews who had been born like in the thirties and forties were suddenly making all this money and starting to break down all of those wasp boundaries. And it just, it was everything like When people would come over to my uncle's apartment, he did buy this Rockefeller apartment. It was the largest apartment in New York, a triplex at 740 that he filled with like, you know, old masters and German expressionists. And it was just like, you know, done to the hilt. He would always say, people would come in and he'd say like, oh, welcome to my ancestral home. Ha 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 ha. You know, we made our money yesterday. We came on the Concord. Like we loved it. 
Like we loved that we had no pedigree. Right, because you understood yourselves to be outsiders, which is such a key insight into American Jewish life, which a generation later was completely lost. And that's where trouble began. Yeah, I mean, I often joke to people now that I don't think there are any more restricted country clubs. I mean, I hear urban legends about them, but I've said to people, if you can find me one that literally doesn't admit Jews, I want to go do a really long article on it for New York Magazine or The New Yorker or something, because I don't think there's one left in America. Leaving aside the Jewish piece for a second and focusing on the money piece, you know, I don't I don't talk to a lot of people who come from billions. So when I have one, I really want to take my moment. I love the podcast, and, it, and as somebody whose wife has also needed maternity wear, you know, thank you for what you've done for maternity wear. But honestly, my question for you, since I have you for the moment, is what do you think when you see people living on $100,000 a year? Could you do it? Do you ever think of like what life is like on my street? They're cops, they're teachers. I think, you know, I think there are people actually, they have two incomes, so maybe they're making 150, 160 combined. Like, what do you think of that? Well, does that sound poor to you? Does that sound middle class? Does that sound like something you could do? Because you did as a child think, what if we were the just enough family? That sounds just, frankly, their families being 30 or 40, but let's say 100,000. What does that feel like to you? You're right that I have very little frame of reference for it. And I'm not criticizing. I'm sincerely curious what it sounds like no, to you. No, I know. I mean, you're like, I'd say like on the one hand, growing up, when I heard things like that, I, I literally was like, oh, they have no money, like poor. Like, even though that wasn't true, like that's sort of what I think I thought, um, despite my just enough family fantasies. I mean, things weren't that consistent. But um, today... I actually think in today's world, it's probably, I feel for them because I think it's hard, right? Like, I think it's kind of hard if you're trying to like send two kids to school and college. I guess, I don't know. I don't, I, I think, I don't, I don't know. It's a good question, but I don't, I don't, maybe I don't think about it a lot. Does that make me sound terribly out of how, how much money do you need to feel like below, at what level would you feel uncomfortable? Would you feel like that sounds like too little to live well? I don't want your viewers to be like, oh my God. Welcome to Unorthodox. <laughs> no, I mean, you've done this thing about great wealth and I'm curious like, what sounds like below great um, wealth to you. Like if you had half a million dollars, you would be like, cool, that's fine. Would it take a million? Yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't think I was super rich. I mean, and again, I think realistically in today's world where there's like so much mass affluence and I live amongst a lot of it because in New right. York City, Palm Beach and East Hampton, it feels like every single person, I'm not saying this about myself because, right. you know, spoiler alert, we lose the money. But I do feel like there are a lot of billionaires around. Like it feels very different than when I was growing up. I was just in Palm Beach and like I have, fr I have friends who have made that kind of money from college. So I've been around it. But again, I am curious, what sounds like enough money to you? I don't know, five to 10 million in the bank. I feel like, like, Things won't go wrong. So if you had to live on my salary, which is like between $100,000 and $200,000, like, do you think you could do that well or does that sound like desperation to you? Does that sound like penury to you? No. If you had a friend who you found out was making $150,000 a year after having lost all millions, does that sound poor? Well, it would sound to me like, depending on where they were coming from, realistically, like a big drop, right? If you drop to that, would you lose your friends? Would you, like, if you couldn't be in the Hamptons anymore, like, what happens if you drop to that? When my family lost their money, uh, right. so I experienced it a bit. My husband and I were living on our salaries, which probably combined were about 500,000 a year. Uh -huh. um, we uh -huh. had two kids, you know, at private school in New York. Yeah. I felt if I didn't feel like, oh my gosh, like we're, I mean, I wasn't even, I didn't even really skip a beat. I wasn't depressed or sad or thinking our life right. is all over or awful, but there's no doubt our life was very different. Like it just was different. And that's a lot of money. I know that $500,000 right. is a lot of money. But when when everyone I knew was kind of part of this child up group where you never even think twice about anything and like 
houses around the world and multiple vacations and philanthropy and all of that is just sort of in the water or like any, like it's just is like my life was different. And I really didn't feel very much in common anymore with the children of crowd. And that was probably kind of a good thing. Possibly. I hadn't felt always that connected to them anyway. And it wasn't that they dropped me. I wouldn't say that happened. Like I know people talk about, it wasn't like, all no, of a people sudden, are like, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt like I wasn't seeing them at the same places. We were just, we're living very different lives. And it, it I had semi taken myself out when I married somebody who was extremely smart. I mean, I talked about it on the podcast, but did not come from money. I easily could have just made a money match. Um, didn't do that. Started my own business, actually got surprisingly into my own business, never expected that, and was kind of working around the clock. So by the time my children were at the 92nd Street Y Nursery School, which is the, the, the place for rich Jews in New York City to send their kids to nursery school. Crazy, I know that there could be a nursery school like that, but it starts young. I wasn't one of the moms who pulled up in the huge SUV right. in my workout clothes. And this sounds all very um, cliche, but it's actually just true. Uh, it's 100% you know, true. It's a hundred percent true who have all day long to sit in the office of the head of the nursery school, which I never even liked her, but you know, kibitzing, talking about the benefit. I was already like, I'm dressed for work. I'm frantic. I've got to get to the office. Um, and I even kind of had like a, you know, fight is too strong of a word, but I was told by the head of the nursery school and some of the parents that they just didn't think I was doing enough, like voluntarily. And I was kind of <laughs> and like, you were like, I have a job. I have, like a I have a job. Right. Right. You all have nothing but time in your hands and you love to do it. So go at it. You're fighting to be the chair of the 92nd Street Y Benefit. I actually don't want to be. I'm too busy. That would take the two minutes I have with my children away from that. So no, but it was it was like I had become sort of an alien. And I still feel like an alien, to be honest. Like I've always felt like one, even rich. I just don't have that much in common. I think all good people feel like aliens. I think that's a sign of, I think that's a sign of virtue. I'm with you there. The show gave me so much pleasure and joy. Uh, and at some point I was like, is this my story? I don't know. Like part of the thing that appealed to me is the notion of actual simple, uncomplicated reverence for tradition. You know, you look at this thing as outsiders. First of all, you understand yourself as outsiders, which is a huge shift to begin with. Again, then you look at it and be like, okay, well, I am now entering a tradition which I must respect in the same way that when I arrived to the city with $2,000 in my pocket, I would, you know, literally skip meals so I could go to Bemelman's at the end of the week and buy a $25 <laughs> martini and feel like a human being because I was entering into this. This is the construct that was good. And, and in a way, I can't tell you how much it repulses me when I look at new, new money, right? Not just because the scales are off the charts because now it's like tens of billions as opposed to hundreds of millions, which is a whole new ballgame, but also because these motherfuckers have no respect whatsoever for tradition. Like you ask Mark Zuckerberg about basic American art, history, design, like he would not know anything, which is why all these offices look like doctors' waiting rooms. Like if I had all this money, I would actually design a nice office. Is that part of it? A hundred percent. Like part of having money, or even if you don't have a lot, as you said, so maybe this does go back to your question, like two questions ago, is it doesn't have to all be so you could do anything sort of with panache or with style is that that was part of what you're saying. You know, I agree. It's better to be able to go to Bevelman's once a week than like eat at, at the automat every day. But on the other hand, tradition is so important. And I actually do think that's actually what almost horrifies me the most about some of our fellow Jews today. Some of it is even if I don't even know enough, understand enough, here's what I do know. I do know that Jews were on penalty of death observing the Sabbath 
in concentration camps. So what am I not going to all of a sudden be like, oh, I don't know. I don't think I'll do that. I don't know. It feels like tradition. That's how we've gotten here. And even when we visit Europe and of course, like all Jews, or at least I think we like, you know, we're always like, let's go to the Jewish quarter. What's the Jewish history of this city, whatever it is. And I see the paintings, the old murals on the synagogues and they're doing exactly what we do. So I don't know if this is at all what you were asking, but to me, a lot of that like really moves us. Like I can't imagine not, I don't even understand not feeling that way, actually. Does that, am I, I don't know if I'm answering you. <laughs> no, yeah, you're, you're plugging right back in, into the same thing, right? And, and again, part of my uh, deep sense of dismay that I express probably too often uh, on, on this year's show uh, is, is precisely the loss of the sense of reverence of coming in and being like, wow, we need to preserve this. Whatever this is, if it's Jewish tradition, if it's American tradition, if it's just a notion that tradition matters. If you go out somewhere, just dress nice, you know, just make an effort. Have some, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to spend a lot of money. It's not about the money. You know? it's, it's not about, about the, the money. Something that I found really refreshing about your show is, you know, we want to do an episode about money right? About like Jews and money, all the things, because it's so unbelievably loaded, right? Like the mm -hmm. stereotypes, the reality. I mean, and what you actually do is like, you talk about money on this show. You talk about coming for money. You talk about liking money. And to me, that's almost like, it's so taboo. Yes. Taboo. Like I, I was listening to it being like, oh my God, are, are, are they going to be, are they going to hear this and know this about us? But you're basically saying, I mean, it's sort of what your family has done, right? Sort of saying we're here and we're not going to, hide who we are or what we have. I mean, I don't know. I like that you, um, there was a Times article when the podcast came out and you said, you know, if people could, you know, people could fall in love with the Sopranos, why couldn't they fall in love with the, the Steinbergs? And so did you feel that you were doing something taboo when you were saying like, this was our family, we had this? I mean, of course, losing that is so much part of the story. That's the thing. So I totally hear you. I was so afraid. And I don't know if you noticed at the beginning when Ari says to me, let's, the first thing she says in that podcast is, let's talk about where we are. And that was the only time I think where I was actually really uncomfortable because I didn't want to talk about having money today. Because that to me felt, well, that's just real housewife. Am I going to sit here and be like, oh, we fly on private planes. I live in a 50,000 square foot mansion. No, I didn't want to do that. I was, it felt different to talk about money in the past when I was a child that I didn't earn that went away. I don't know, like the taboo is like that you'd always be modest. And my parents certainly, it, my, you know, as I said, like my parents had this weird thing where on the one hand, they were super flashy. On the other hand, they were super modest. And again, it doesn't make sense, but they both were true. Um, they would die before any of us would ever say we were rich. But on the other hand, so talking about it in the past is what, what to me didn't feel quite as taboo. But I even thought to myself, there are going to be people listening when I say, you think I don't know that right before you introduced me to anyone, you were whispering like, Liz Steinberg is crazy, crazy, crazy rich. I knew that was my tagline. I felt it like the way that like, I almost feel today, like I'm, I semi know how celebrities must feel that I know that you know that everyone is kind of looking at you and whispering about you. Everywhere we went where there were other rich Jews and it was really comforting actually. It was very mooring. My family knew that. If we went to London, we had dinner at Jacob Rothschild's. If we went to Paris, we went to Chateau Lafitte because you know, the grandmother Rothschild just adored my father. You know what I mean? Like, like everywhere we went, like we arrived in the Caribbean once and who's there, but uh, Charles and Maurice Saatchi, they were the big art dealers. And of course it's like, oh my God, it's so, it's such a small world. And, but there was something really 
afraid about it. You were part of this like world that made perfect sense to me that I knew again, like it wasn't that I was unaware, like Ari, I thought it was a funny moment. I've laughed at her about it too. Cause I know, cause she comes from a, such a different perspective. So I knew what she meant when I talk about Mike Milken and then she reads all that, those facts about him. Like, well, he went to jail. He paid uncle Mike. Uncle Mike, but I don't care. Like to this day, if I were to be able to rebut that, I'd say, right, that's all the stuff that my family still thinks this day was unfair. We found that unfair. We know, we know he went to jail. We know he paid, but we know he did it because he didn't want to give up his brother. We love him for it. I want to just set some records straight. Like, so for instance, I don't know if this made it into the podcast, but like, I'm always asked by reporters about, didn't your uncle give a big party at the Temple of Dender when your cousin turned 21. Well, you know what? Yes, he did. Let me explain that to you. He gave so much money to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It never benefited him because they wouldn't put a Jewish Bulgarian on their board. All he wants was to be on their board, but no, they wouldn't do that because of anti-Semitism at that time, but he still gave and gave. And when you give that much, let me tell you something. On Mondays, when the museum is closed, you were allowed to use it for a party because you've given so much. So do you, do you know what I, mean? I feel like I want to scream yeah. over all the like, you know. So much I, to the museum you enjoy. Right, because you get to go yeah. there and you get to see those exhibits right. that my uncle underwrote. And sure, he got his name on the building or on whatever. That's what happens when you give money. Jewish, not Jewish. That's the way it goes. Same thing with like University of Pennsylvania. If you only knew like all the programs he underwrote, even things he barely agreed with, like he would say, you need more, you know, English programs. I know you're not reading half the books that I think you should be reading. He used to fight with the New York Public Library because they wouldn't put the you know books of famous economists and historians that were too conservatively leading on their list, he'd still give. So I also meant the podcast to be a little bit of a love letter to my family and to all Jews. You know, it's so interesting. I, I never thought about this connection between the fundamental outlying emotional ickiness, resentment that fuels so much anti-Zionism and the same exact sentiment that fuels so much, you know, anti, well, for, for any, for lack of a better term, anti-rich, sort of jaundiced eyed, jealous resentment uh, on behalf of people who simply chose to not do <laughs> and not take any of the risks and not self-actualize and not go in there and not embrace tradition and not embrace who they are and not embrace community and family and love of others and are sitting there being like, oh, you're so clubbish and you think you deserve everything. Well, buddy, we fucking worked for it. This is ours. You got a problem with that? Talk to our army. That's the way that I feel exactly about Israel. Pe people are just generally very, very conflicted and very jealous about success. And that, again, I think I probably say in the podcast, like, and this is no, like, I, you're all kind of journalists, so this is no offense. But like when journalists would write bad things, my dad, my uncle, they'd say they're jealous. They're just jealous. And the truth is today, I kind of think maybe they were. Liz Lang, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Will you give us like one like a juicy thing that we'll get about the, in your podcast for listeners who are not already, you know, converts from, from our conversation so far? I mean, you're going to hear the details of how we, you know, our, our, the, the rich life we led and how it all disappeared and how, I mean, if it's less interesting and how I built my business and yeah, all of it. Like, but I think the insider view and my family speaks on it. I'm not the only one. Like some of my well-known family members um, also give their insights into um, what it was like to be a Steinberg. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. I love you guys. I'm so honored to be on this. Thank you. Mailbox. Got a letter in the mailbox. Got a letter in the mailbox. 
mailbox. To the mailbox. The first letter I'm going to read this week takes me to task. A reader writes, Hi, guys. I'm just wondering at the fact that you never acknowledge the calamity at our doorstep, the environment. I was puzzled when Mark was talking about his book tour and said that he actually flew home from Chicago and the next day flew to Detroit, which is an easy train ride from Chicago. I'm guessing you do not touch this subject due to fear of it being controversial in certain circles. But on the other hand, you all now have children. And if we don't act quickly to stop the pollutants in our environment, they will have a much lower quality of life than we have. Regards, Allison Wexler Cipriani. And Allison, no, the reason I didn't mention it is because I just didn't think of it because I was being obtuse and stupid. And as somebody who takes the environment very seriously and, and counts that among the reasons that I'm a vegetarian um, because meat production is so bad for the environment, I take that super serious. And I'm so glad you pointed that out. And actually, airline flight, the extraordinary levels of pollutants that come from getting places by airplane rather than driving or taking the train is something I've only recently been awakened to. And I actually want to fly a lot less. And I'm going to be more selective about gigs I say yes to if a flight's involved. And I'm also going to look into the carbon offsets where you can, you know, dedicate money to reclaiming some of the, the, the carbon cost in other areas when you have to fly. I think it's super important. And I think that's right. And I think it's one of those areas of extreme hypocrisy where a lot of people who take the environment very seriously, including some activists, then go around jet setting around the world to spread their message. The hypocrisy is real really thick. And I'm glad you pointed it out. I think that's totally right. Speaking of extreme hypocrisy, you know what generates a lot of pollution for real? Uh, servers for, for internet uh, traffic and searches and stupid judgy emails also generate a lot of that. So maybe also less of internet usage uh, could bring the environment some peace. Is that true? Yeah. That the servers are, are highly Huge. polluting? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I'm not I'm not surprised. I think we should and dryers, by the way. Yeah. So like write my one family's less just, judgy email a day and you would be doing Liel, your part for the environment. Are you tweaking Allison Cipri Wexler Cipriani for sending this email? Moi? I think I think the carbon cost of sending this email was more than worth it. I'm gonna defend her and thank her for uh for taking me to task. Allison Cipriani, <laughs> I will take two flights just to thank you in person. For this Liel, call. the next letter takes you to task. So I'd like you to read it. Oh, 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 hey gang. I just listened to the October 6th episode and want to take issue with Liel's response to the idea of fake pork products. I don't keep kosher, so I don't have a horse or even a beyond horse in this race. But how do you justify the plethora of fake Pesach foods like breakfast cereals and cupcake mix that allow people to keep the rules while pretending they're eating their normal diet. What about to foodie non-dairy desserts or parv cream cheese so you can have the experience of eating ice cream and cream cheese with meat and still stick to the letter of the law? Much like the women practicing tznias who wear, or modesty, who wear three-inch heels, skin-tight dresses that cover their knees and Farrah Fawcett shadows, these kinds of workarounds make kashras and other Jewish restrictions seem archaic and even hypocritical. Drawing an imaginary line at Beyond Pork seem arbitrary and, dare I say, silly. Best, Terry. What a great email. So here's the thing. Part of me is, is kind of deep in agreement with Terry against me and my original argument. Uh, because there is something sort of, you know, profoundly stupid about saying, well, yes, you may have a cheeseburger with, you know, vegan cheese and lamb bacon as is served in many a fine kosher establishment. But God forbid we would create sort of fake pork. And yet a part of me really thinks like there's something 
Voldemorty, right? About the pork. There's something like totemic. There's something that transcends the sort of mere exchange and, and work around solutions that we have for all these, you know, kosher products and substitutions. There's something that just tells you, just stop. You don't want to go there because the goal isn't to assimilate. The goal isn't to have something that feels like pork because you crave it. I, I think it's fine to pick like this one kind of big emblematic thing. But Terry, I take what you say very seriously. And, you know, maybe this Pesach, I'll be a little better about not seeking out all these alternatives uh, and instead trying to kind of embrace the uh, chametz free life. What is happening? Are you just suddenly like open to listener feedback all of a sudden? All, this all of a sudden, we take 2022. We take new criticism. Year, new us. No, because look, the point that she makes is very valid. Or he, I, I don't know if Terry is a man or a woman. But at the same time, by the way, a, a perfectly Talmudic way of looking at it, you could have a rule and then a sort of an exception because, hey, look, this isn't like the other things. This stands alone. This is the Maginot line. The, the Rubicon. The line that must not be crossed. I mean, look, I think I, as someone who does not keep kosher or practice any of these things, I do find like, I, first of all, I love a loophole. Talmudic workarounds are like, to me, what, what are just the most Jewish thing ever, right? Like, it's it's like this ingenuity to work around these, you know, these like decrees. That line, I love a loophole. That That's so, <laughs> love the essence is so beautiful. Just like leaning right into just love a loophole. But yeah, I don't like this dig at like wit, modest women who wear, how dare they wear three inch heels. Like there's a sort of a, a judginess here that yeah. I don't. Oh, this person definitely has an issue with the Orthodox. So we got a voicemail from our pal, Ellen Kahn Zager, who takes us to task for our Christmas episode. Shalom, shalom, kids. It's your old show president, Ellen Kahn, as in Genghis Zager. You know I love you, and I usually love what you do. However, I have to say the Christmas episode made me very uncomfortable. I know you're unorthodox, but I'm feeling like this time you went well over the top. Do we Jews stand for anything, like recognizing that Christmas is someone else's holiday we can appreciate and yet not make our own? So I don't really understand. I mean, Ellen, we love you. You're a, lo a loyal listener of the show. Someone isn't in the spirit of the season. <laughs> Nothing about our Christmas episode suggested any of us was going to Christmas mass. Or so, I mean, is it that we should not listen? We should protect our virgin ears from Christmas carols? Or, I mean, the, the Quintern did a piece about her belief in Santa Claus, but the Quintern's converting to Judaism. I don't know. I think you need to think more about what bothered you. I think this is kind of on you, Ellen Konzager. And maybe you should think more deeply. Like, what specifically did we do wrong? Should we not do Christmas episodes, even though we're Americans and, and there's Christmas here? Should we not write beautiful Christmas songs or make Christmas movies like Die Hard? Should we take all this gift away from America? Well, I guess the train has already left the station, which is an awkward metaphor for us. Hey, Stephanie, uh, the last letter is uh, Liel and I get, get, get slapped down. Yes, you do. And you get this. Would you read the next letter? So our next letter comes from Haley, who says, Hello, Unorthodox. I just listened to your 300th episode, Mazel Tov. I wanted to email you specifically about the part where Stephanie explained her rocky beginnings with the pod. By the way, I love that, my rocky beginnings with the pod. That's like the most perfect phrase I've ever heard. That's I could great. not help but see myself in her words, a shy, anxiety-ridden girl who has a lot to say, but when she finally gains courage, the moment has passed. This made me think back to high school where I used to annotate and post it the crap out of books days in advance for Socratic seminars so I would have the right thing to say and I would specifically wear scarves those days to hide the anxiety rash that plagued my neck. 
But as hard as I try, I can't seem to rise to the occasion. Now, as a young adult, I work at a Jewish nonprofit remotely and still have the same problems I did as a kid because, as we all know, Zoom meetings are hard, but Zoom meetings with Jews are even harder. I think she's talking about us interrupting each other on Zoom, by the way. Mm. I think that's what she means by that. Who's interrupting? I was touched by what Stephanie had to say because I look up to her and have to say she is my favorite host. Sorry, Lee Ellen Mark. She's our favorite host, too. Knowing that she has gone through the same struggles as me gives me hope. Thank you. Keep doing what you are doing, and I hope to listen to another 300. Haley, thank you for this note. I have to say that I want you to speak up at these meetings. I mean, I think it's hard. There's like that raise hand thing on, that you can do on Zoom, but that can, maybe could be too passive. But I would just honestly encourage you, and you're, I don't know that you're asking me for my advice, but now I can't stop talking. So here we go. Just like raise your hand. Just just jump in. I think that you can do it. And I, Haley, will encourage you to drink. Uh, it helps with inhibitions. But you know what? I'm not done talking to Haley. You know what you should do before a meeting? You should like send an email around and be like, here are some things. Like I have some great ideas for this meeting. I'd love to touch on each of them. And then you just like give people a taste so that they know. It is hard. Our podcast is not a normal work environment. Like I can see there being different, you know, not everyone wants (laughs) their like coworkers to interrupt them all the time. But like, I think you should think about ways to assert yourself before the meeting that like let people know that you have stuff to say. I want this to be our next t-shirt. Unorthodox, not a normal work environment. Rocky beginnings with the pod. Since 5770-whatever. Unorthodox, we love a loophole. And finally, I want to I go out with a voicemail that we missed the boat on back in uh, November. But it's such a charming, happy birthday voicemail that, um, you know what, we're going we're gonna to play it anyway. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is David. I am Irish. I live in Norway. And I listen to the podcast regularly. Thanks to Miriam, who is my fiance and we're about to get married very soon but more importantly i think miriam is about to celebrate her 30th birthday i would really really love if you could give her a shout out on the show a big mazel tov because well she loves the show we listen to it every episode and it's been great for both of us me as an irish person who doesn't know very much about jewish life and for her uh, because it helps her deepen her Jewish uh, interest and heritage. So that's it from an Irish, Jewish, American, Norwegian couple. Thank you, guys. Delvin Dell Case is a Christian composer who lives near Boston. He's written a cantata about the binding of Isaac based on his reading of a humanist Jewish rabbi's midrash that Abraham actually went through that actually killed his son. We had the great pleasure of talking with Del Case a couple weeks ago. Have a listen. Del, thank you for joining us on Unorthodox. Delvin is a strong name. It feels like it's some sort of like Midwestern mashup of Grandpa Delbert and Grandma Evelyn. Did they invent it? Or is Delvin a, a minor New Testament figure I don't know about? My name is entirely made up all three names. Uh, I'm the third. And it was my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was Casimir Kostas, a Polish Catholic who wanted to change his name to fit in, to assimilate. So in the 40s, he just gave up Casimir Kostas and made up Delvin Cadron Case and liked it. So he named my dad. And so I have like a super waspy name, (laughs) but I'm really not a wasp. But as I tell my kids, you know, you know, it's really easy for your grandfather to just change his name and have access to mainstream society. Isn't that nice? You know, there are a lot of people who can't do that. <laughs> so I think that a, a great segue into into the topic at hand is the t-shirt. You're coming strong with that t-shirt. Would you tell our listeners on Unorthodox what your t-shirt says? I'm wearing Jesus. This is sort of a, sort of a real hipster shirt I got and advertised to be on Facebook from some like progressive Christian group I'm a part of. 
He's got a Renaissance picture of Jesus with his head tilted and his eyes like half closed, you know, the olive eyes and long hair. And he's got a crown of thorns. But then on top of it, it says, OMG, you guys, that's not what I said. <laughs> I'm like, we're not all like the Christians you think. That's kind of what I'm trying to communicate through that. Unpack that for us. Nerd out for me, but also explain to our listeners what kind of Christian you are. So I'm a Protestant. I identify as a, a progressive Christian, which is a term that's really only come into my understanding or my, my orbit over the last like 10 or 15 years. Basically, progressive Christianity generally is sort of updated version of liberal Protestantism that basically says that we can change the world, and make it better. Progressive Christians tend to look at the historical figure of Jesus as a, a radical who had a vision for changing society and making it more welcoming and inclusive. And we try to sort of follow Jesus, as you would say, through being very active in the political and social realm, advocating for causes of justice. Yeah, I would say that the t-shirt captures all that quite wonderfully. <laughs> I mean, I don't even use the word Christian to describe myself usually unless I feel like I'm in a safe space because that word has been co-opted so powerfully by the people with like the TV networks. I'm just imagining the 24-hour liberal Protestant TV network. There would be a lot of, of shows on weaving. There would be fair trade hour. There would be, I'm, just, I'm just going based on the signs I see outside the, the liberal Protestant churches all over New Haven. Do you believe, are you orthodox in the sense that you believe that Christ you know, died on the cross and on the third day was resurrected and that, that's all true? I believe in, I'm not sure where I'm at in terms of the Jesus' physical resurrection. And that doesn't put, that might put me on a, on a liberal wing of Protestantism, but it doesn't make me heterodox, according to a lot of people. The idea of Christ having, being a living presence in the world today is pretty mainstream among a lot of progressive Christians. I believe Jesus was a historical figure and the miracles and even the physical resurrection is not a thing that I stake my faith on, uh, which is kind of weird. It's weird, but it's not weird because like, if, if you know the New Testament, it's mostly stories about like what Jesus did. And then at the end of the gospels, he dies. There's that kind of stuff. Um, but if you look at like the, the Apostles' Creed, like the famous creed that is spoken in Christian churches, Catholic, Protestant, it basically goes, I believe in God, blah, blah, blah. Then I believe in Jesus. He was born of a Virgin Mary, became man. And then the next thing is, and on the third day, he was, oh, sorry, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So like the literal creed goes from birth to death. And so this creed, which is stood to Christians as like the statement of what we believe, literally does not include all of the Bible stories about what Jesus did before he was crucified. And so you even look at that and you say, well, there's a, oh, if you're supposed to follow Christ in your life, yes, I guess it means go, go get crucified, but it also means why don't we like honor and pay attention to the stories and the things that he actually did while alive? Um, so that's just another way of how like, even the, the most orthodox creed has a, a hole in it, a huge hole in it that doesn't really reflect what it, I feel like it really means to be a Christian. So here you are reading all the stories about Jesus and what he did. And at some point, you also start reading some older stories. Tell us about this encounter with, with our part of the Bible. As any Christian kid, you learn both sets of stories. I was raised a Catholic, and then when I was 15, my dad got born again and took me and the whole family to like a mega church with the Christian rock band and the theater lighting and stuff. And at that point, the American evangelicals, they're really, really interested in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And there's a real focus on learning those stories inside out. What was it that drew you to, to the story of the Binding of Isaac, inspired by which you composed a cantata? What about that incredible, weird, powerful bit of, of storytelling that spoke to so many throughout the ages, spoke to you specifically? It really comes down to my own wrestling with what the Bible means and whether it's true. Because as a Christian, you know, especially as an American Protestant who comes from an evangelical background, we have been accused of holding the Bible up as an idol. It's not God, but we treat it as God. And uh, I think that's true in a lot of ways. But basically, if you read this story, Abraham is held up as this paragon of faith, this example. 
and it's taught that way uncritically when like when you're a kid in Sunday school. And yet, if you just stop for a minute and think about what it's telling you, like, yes, it's an example of faith. We should all have faith. We should do what God says. That's fine. But what if God tells you to go, you know, kill your son? You're just taught that, oh, here's just another hero of the faith, Abraham, Rahab, uh, Peter. You know, they're all undifferentiated. Well, there's kind of a difference between the, the Abraham faith, right? A, a term that's thrown around a lot these days in the evangelical and progressive Christian world is deconstruction, uh, which means basically the process in which a former evangelical extricates themselves. And I use that term because it feels like you're removing yourself from a sticky situation, right? Extricates themselves from a, a, a very sort of narrow yet powerful religious subculture without giving up their faith. I've gone through this process for 20 years now. And a huge part of it is trying to understand, well, how do I read the Bible and how does it function for me in my life as a person of faith? And do I believe it all happened literally? No, I don't believe that. Most evangelicals will say they don't. If they say they do, you'll push them and they will say they don't. But this is a tricky one because the long history of Christians holding up Abraham as a paragon of faith to listen to what God says and to do what God says sort of no matter what. Now, Kierkegaard has a really interesting take on this. He does? Yeah. Abraham was testing God, not the other way around. And he, it's really complicated. Uh, but for me, I just wanted to say, well, how do I deal with this story? And it's, so, I mean, my, in my artistic practice, which is a huge part of my personal life, I tend to work on projects that will help me answer a question for myself. So like for me, the best topic for a piece of music is some issue or text or idea that I'm not quite sure of. And I use that artistic practice to try to explore. But I decided to basically say, well, what would happen if I tried to take this text as a libretto or as a text that I set to music? And what can I find out about that text for me and maybe for my co-religionists? Yeah, this is going to sound a little dumb, but what is a cantata? Yeah, so a cantata is a sacred musical work for chorus and or soloists and instruments. Uh, It's based on text from the Bible usually, but often includes devotional poetry or prayers. It's usually heard in concert hall today, but originally cantatas were intended for performance as part of a church service. Essentially, a cantata functioned as a musical sermon, uh, sort of a chance for the composer to interpret a selection of scripture that was assigned for a particular Sunday. Um, Bach was the best known composer of cantatas. He basically wrote one per week for about two or three years while he was working at a church in Germany in the 18th century. Um, My piece is a bit more intimate than many cantatas. It just features a solo singer, a soprano in this case, with a small instrumental group of six musicians rather than a whole orchestra. Uh, It takes for its text the story of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, though it actually approaches the biblical text in a kind of unorthodox way. Uh, It's about 20 minutes, was premiered during a church service outside of Boston in November of 2021. So what's the commentary? What's the argument of this sermon? There are several arguments that I'm trying to make, and they're based upon who's listening. I'll just focus on the argument I was trying to make when I viewed the cantata as essentially a musical sermon or commentary for my co-religionists, because this piece could and hopefully will be performed in concert halls where there's a different resonance. But the basic argument I was trying to make is that Christians have uncritically accepted elements of this story in their understanding of it. And the specific thing is not the question of what is faith. Like I'm not saying that Christians have uncritically accepted Abraham as a paragon of faith, though I think that is true. The argument is that we have uncritically accepted the violence that's at the core of the story, specifically this notion of atonement through blood sacrifice. When the Christians come in, we have taken this whole idea of God requires the spilling of blood of his son. In case you haven't noticed, like, we're kind of really into that, hashtag Jesus. And that's one theology of salvation and atonement in the Christian world. It's certainly not the only one. But the 
more difficult and problematic part of this acceptance of blood sacrifice is the embrace of violence to make the world different. The embrace of violence as expiatory, as salvific. And if you look at so many paintings of this scene by Christian artists, you see there's a gore factor. But also, I mean, look at Christendom. Like we're kind of into using violence to make the world the way we want it to be or to save other people. You don't want to believe? We'll just kill all you people. I think a lot of Christians don't step back and think that when they see this as Abraham as a paragon of faith, they're implicitly recognizing that that they worship a God who tolerates, if not embraces, violence and bloodshed. And so the idea of this cantata, in this cantata, my approach to this argument was to embrace the absurdism of the story and musically to emphasize the extremely challenging, problematic, and in some ways, many ways, damaging embrace of sort of violence, of the act of almost killing your son or the ask of go and kill your son, essentially. I used the the small orchestra to create a sort of a sonic environment around the music or around the the solo singing of the text that embraced this absurdism. So I asked the musicians to play things like bicycle horns or slide whistles and essentially to to bust through that sort of the the way that the story has been sort of presented and soft pedaled and, and sort of grab the listener and say, hey, God told this guy to kill his son. And you need to stop for a second and just think about what that actually means. I'll play for you a portion of the piece that happens right after, actually the climactic moment where Abraham has bound Isaac. Don't spoil the ending. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I'll get there. <laughs> yeah. So as you know, Abraham binds Isaac. And at that point, uh, it gets really complicated <laughs> because the text that we have says that Abraham ju- is just about to do it. And then the angel steps in and says, no, don't. Now I know that you fear me. And the part of the music that I'll play for you, it happens right before this happens. So basically, Abraham takes the, takes the knife, essentially. And at that point, you're going to hear this sort of absurdist sort of explosion from the orchestra. But then something really weird happens. And this is where it, it folds into the point I just made about the, the story that we think we all know. Because it really inspired me to take this absurdist approach to, this, to the piece of music. And the thing that really made me excited about setting this text to music is this scholarship, this uh, tradition that I discovered through this, this rabbi scholar named Sema Yora. And he basically is the latest guy to say, I think that Abraham actually did it, actually went all the way through with it. And basically his point is that probably the version that we have in the Bible today is it represents a, a later redaction of a text in which a later scholar went in and sort of took the original story and said, well, we can't have this anymore. Uh, our, our forebears used to believe in child sacrifice. We don't anymore. So let's, let's add a part with as an angel. At that point, as I read this guy's article about this, about Tzimayor's work, I thought, that's really interesting. And then I thought to myself, does it really matter to me if God stepped in and said, stop? I mean, in a sense, that, that's even worse, because then God knew all along that it was just a ruse. So I thought to myself, well, what would happen if I, if I just set that original text? What if I just set the story as if, as if it was in the first you know, several generations? So in my version of the story, Basically, the story goes up through, Abraham takes the knife, and then the next thing you know is the angel says, hey, good work, now I know that you fear me. The part of the music that I'll, that I'll play for you folks includes the, that climax, so what happens in the middle, what happens in that hole in the story. And what happens in the hole of the story in my setting is something which is even more absurdist, which is that in that moment, I actually asked the congregation to be a part of the piece of music, to sing a hymn, a Christian hymn in this moment. Now, before you get mad at me, we're co-opting this even more. Let me explain. You know, for Christians, for especially for sort of evangelicals of the last four or 500 years, I'm going to get into heaven based upon whether my theology is correct, whether I believe in something. 
And usually whether Jesus Christ died for my sins, you might have heard that. And it's very self-absorbed in the sense that it's very individualistic. So, and many Christians, when you go to a church that does that, there's an altar call. The priest, the pastor says, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, come down to the front of the church and say the Jesus prayer. And, you know, which means basically Jesus, I welcome you into my heart. And then guess what? You're going to heaven. And oftentimes there's a song that's sung. And many times that song is Amazing Grace. So you stop there and you have them all sing Amazing Grace in the middle of the cantata? Exactly. So at the very moment where this is happening or not happening, the congregation sings Amazing Grace because I want them to connect this sort of self-absorbed understanding of what salvation is with the fact that it's frankly a lot more complicated historically. Let's have a listen. And then when we come back, we're going to get your Gentile of the Week question. if I may, you clearly know a lot about us uh, and about our stuff, but it seems like you came to us today with a question. So uh, have at us. I think my question is related to what I really find really attractive and interesting about Judaism from what I've learned from the podcast and from other friends, which is that can you be a religious Jew, a religious Jewish person without 
knowing what you believe. 100%. Here, here's the thing. I'll crib a line from the writer uh, and friend of the show, Micha Goodman, uh, th- that had, you know, this, this great example. It's like you could, you could look at two of Judaism's kind of main figures, putting on tefillin, right, in the morning. You could look at the Holy Ari, uh, who is, you know, attributed to be sort of like the, the father of, of Kabbalah Jewish mysticism. And you ask him, you know, what it is that you're doing when you put into fill in. And he would talk to you about the spherot and connecting to God and, and plugging into the sort of mystic order of the universe and developing this very intense personal connection with the creator. And then you could ask the Rambam, Maimonides, you know, the, the supreme rationalist, you know, what do you think of this guy's answer? And he's like, connecting to God as a person, that's like, that's almost sacrilege. No, that, that, not at all. You do it because that's what Jewish law, you know, commands us to do every morning. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, the only reason. Now, here's the thing. What you believe doesn't freaking matter. If you believe doesn't matter. You could be a perfectly good, and this is Yeshayahu Leibovich, the famous uh, 20th century Israeli Jewish philosopher. So like you, you could be a complete perfect atheist and still be a total religious Jew. In fact, there's, there's a lot of kind of jokes in rabbinic literature uh, along these lines, because the, the genius of the faith is that it begins with practice. L- let me add something on a personal note. As someone who always had very, very strong faith in God, but didn't really get religion until he decided to embrace practice uh, in, in, in a sort of uncomplicated, un, unquestioning form, not really knowing what I was doing or why I was doing it, it works perfectly. There's a reason why uh, on the foothills of Mount Sinai, the Israelites say, Nasevenishma, we will do it first, uh, then we will listen. <laughs> first comes action, then comes contemplation. And you know, it's interesting, Del, listening to you talk. I mean, I think you know a lot more about Jewish texts than a lot of Jews. Um, and that's okay, right? Like, I think that there's something about, and this is, what's interesting, like this, I feel like is at the root of a lot of our like Gentile of the Week questions, which is basically like, if I don't, they're, they're, they're usually formulated as like, if I don't believe, are, if you don't believe, are you still a Jew, right? Like, because in Christianity, it's a little bit different. I mean, your question is so interesting because it's, if you don't know what you believe necessarily, um, are you still, you know, in this, this world? And I think that questioning is so much a part of how we're raised. Del Case, you glad you asked? Yeah, gives me a lot to think about. Del Case, you've been an exemplary Gentile of the Week. You came to us bringing uh, Shirah, bringing music and joy, and, uh, gentilic, beatific goodwill. We wish you many gin and tonics and, and uh, trips to Nantucket up there in Boston <laughs> with your Gentile brethren. Your music and so much more can be found at DelvinCase. Are you a .org, a .com? You're a .com, aren't you? I'm a .com. I'm, I'm full of hope. But Delvin, I have to say my favorite part about your website is like there's two buttons, Christian stuff and everything else. <laughs> you got to know your audience, man. <laughs> I'm also not going to spell Delvin because I feel like you have to be, that's sort of a test you have to pass through. If you can find DelvinCase.com, you've earned it. You've earned the privilege of studying with, with Reb Delvin. <laughs> Reb Del, Del Case. Uh, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. This has been great. Thanks a lot so much. Mazel tovs. I would like to start this week with uh, Bat Mitzvah Zoe Katz, who became a Bat Mitzvah Saturday morning, Shabbat, at my shul, Beth Alkester Israel in New Haven. Um, as somebody who is himself the dad of a COVID Bat Mitzvah, that was my daughter Elizabeth last May, when things were a little bit better and, and she got a good attendance, I know that there are a couple years worth of B'nai Mitzvah, as well as people who've had to postpone weddings and so many, so many people who have simchas that they haven't been able to celebrate the way that they'd hoped. And I feel especially bad for the uh, 
boys and girls who have worked for, you know, a year, two years, sometimes more, I mean, really their whole lives in a sense to, um, to, to, to read a little bit of Torah or Haftorah or give a speech or do whatever they're doing to mark the day and then, um, and are hoping to do so with some number of friends and family and then can't. I reached out to Zoe's mother, Julie Katz, who wrote back to me, Zoe shined this past Shabbat and put almost as much energy and effort into practicing as she does into polo. We'd really like to give a shout out to her tutor, Jackie Shulafant, and to Rabbi Eric, and to Joanna Romberg, who made Zoe feel so special and boosted her confidence. In her Devar Torah, she spoke about how unfair she thinks it was that God unequivocally killed all the firstborn, even the Egyptian slaves and cattle. This made her question the goodness of God and realize God is flawed, and really that we're all flawed. She said she has trouble seeing her own flaws until her parents point them out to her. Rabbi Eric, says Eric Woodward, built on this idea by acknowledging that many of us feel inferior as Jews. Maybe we feel we don't pray in the right way or don't know how to. Maybe we come from intermarried families or have a different gender identity. He made everyone feel so warm and welcome, even my 96-year-old grandmother who streamed the service. She had her own bat mitzvah at age 58. So thanks to Julie Katz for sharing those thoughts on her daughter Zoe's bat mitzvah and a mazel tov to Zoe. What a, what a wonderful day. And you know what? The Jewish people were watching, even if they couldn't all be there in person. In keeping with people who didn't get all the love that they should, a uh, happy birthday to our super listener, Arden Donahue, who was born on the 17th of Tevet, which this year was December 21st. We knew about it, but we missed it. And we're so, so sorry. And now some farewells. First of all, to Lonnie Guinier, who was Jewish, the great legal scholar, and the New York Times failed to mention it, and it wasn't mentioned in lots of places. But of course, she was Jewish. Uh, she was black and Jewish. And uh, we are sorry to have lost her. And that wasn't the only loss this week. Another big one, comedian Bob Saget. What, what can one even say about Bob Saget? When you tell the greatest version out there of the aristocrats, and yet when you pass the word everyone universally uses to describe you as mensch, you know you've lived life properly. Five. You know, girls hearing that beautiful song makes me realize that you two are definitely up to something. The May your heavenly house forever be full. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross, who edits the show along with Robert Scaramuccia and Quinn Waller. Our managing producer is Sara Fredman Ader. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm not going to give you the handles. I'm not going to give you our names on those platforms because you guys are smart enough. Our episode art now and forever is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Nora Feinstein. And we come to you from the scattered basement layers deep behind the boilers of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. 